0: Welcome to the Dunwoody Community Church podcast. We are so glad you have chosen to listen in to one of our Sunday services, and we hope that you will be blessed by today's message. For more information about Dunwoody Community Church, please visit us at dunwoodychurch.org. That's dunwoodychurch.org. Welcome to another episode of Church at its Worst, the book of 1 Corinthians, or as one commentary I read put it. If as a pastor, you ever think your church has more than its fair share of problems, you have only to read 1 Corinthians to know how lucky you are. So turn in your Bibles to chapter seven of 1 Corinthians. While you're doing that, let me make a sort of modified public service announcement. Now, nothing like the past couple times that I've preached. right? We're out of those sections. Um, There's nothing in this coming section in chapter seven that is, is, is all worrisome about kids hearing, but we are going to reference some of the things we said in the earlier sections because Paul's going to reference them. So, you know, if the the last couple sermons have been definitely R-rated, this one's going to be, be PG all the way through. It's going to stray into PG-13 a couple times. So again, parents, totally your call to preview this or, or whatever about whether your kids see it. So, all right, having said that, turn in your Bibles as I said, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We're going to start reading in in verse 8 and we're going to go down through the m um, down through verse 24. So, follow along with me if you will. Now, to the unmarried and the widows I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it's better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married I give this command, not I but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband, But if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And a husband must not divorce his wife. To the rest, I say this, I, not the Lord. If a brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her husband. Otherwise your children will be unclean, but as it is, they are holy." But if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or the sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. How do you know, wife, whether you'll save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you'll save your wife? Nevertheless, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them, just as God has called them. This is the rule I lay down in all the churches. Was a man already circumcised when he was called? He should not be uncircumcised. Was a man uncircumcised when he was called? He should not be circumcised circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing keeping god's commands is what counts each person should remain in the situation they were in when god called them were you a slave when you were called don't let it trouble you although if you can gain your freedom do so for the one who was a slave when called to faith in the lord is the lord's freed person similarly the one who was free when called is christ's slave you were bought at a price do not become slaves of human beings Brothers and sisters, each person as responsible to God should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. So if you remember last week, Paul signaled at the end of that section that he was gonna talk next about the singleness and marriage, and sure enough, that's exactly what we get to in verse eight. He starts out this new section on being single. And to us, verse eight sounds just so totally normal. Yeah, absolutely, it's fine not to be married, it's good. Paul says, I'm not married, it's not a problem. But you need to know how incredibly subversive a statement that was in Paul's age. No one that Paul was writing to would think that was okay You know, when, when this was read in Corinth, I imagine this like collective intake of breath. because <gasps> as I've told you before, being married was the law in the Roman Empire. You were required to be married. Now, the law is from like 60 years before Paul's writing this. It's from the first emperor. We're on the fourth emperor. It's not that it's necessarily being enforced, but the law is part of the entire culture because this is a communal culture it's not like us we're an individualistic culture so you get your worth from what you individually do but in the culture of the bible both uh, the culture of the old testament and the the greco-roman culture of the new testament you get your worth from the community you're in which in this world is your family You don't get your worth based on what you do, you get your worth based on what's happening in your family. So in our world, if your dad is this super successful CEO of a company and you're unemployed and can't hold the job down, no one's gonna look at you and say you are successful because the you is singular. You personally, what have you individually done? Well, nothing that would merit us saying that you're successful. But in the world Paul's writing to, if someone's father was a super successful CEO of a company, they would absolutely look at that person and say, oh, you're so successful, because he is plural, your family, All of you together, you get your significance, you get your self-worth, you get your importance from the role you play in your family and your family's success and significance in the greater world. And the the Greco-Roman society that Paul's writing to in Corinth would be what we would call pre-traditional. Men went out and worked, women stayed home in the family, took care of kids. So a woman's worth in this world, her sense of identity and well-being is tied up in having children, raising children, taking care of a home, managing all of those things for her family so that the family is successful in the wider world. That's where she would find significance. And what does Paul say? Paul says any Christian can live a fulfilled and significant life without being part of that. He says, I do it, he calls it good. That is nuts in this world. Nobody, nobody believes this. But that in fact is one of the common complaints in the first couple hundred years that the Roman authorities have about Christians. One of the things that people in the Roman world say about Christians is, oh goodness, they let the women run wild. Because in their world, a woman had to be at home, she had to be married, she had to be with children. That was what made the world go round. That was what you did. For Paul to say, no, it's okay to not be married. The Romans complain about the Christians, that they give women too much freedom. Now, you know, nowadays, our culture complains about Christianity because it dares to say that a woman could be fulfilled as merely, quote unquote, a wife and mother. Our culture finds that incredibly limiting because we think you have to get your success from work. You have to produce something, you have to do something, you have to be successful in the wider world in order to have personal significance. And Christianity says, no, taking care of a family, that that's honorable and good that's absolutely significant so the modern culture hates us for one reason the culture of the Romans hated us for the exact opposite reason the culture's always gonna hate us and really they have good reason to because Paul is just making these incredible statements now in the next verse in verse 9 there's a caveat to that he doesn't want people to think oh you have to be single and I don't know how you read this, but I read it, if they cannot control themselves, they should marry. It's better to marry than to burn with passion, right? That kind of sounds the way we read it, like Paul's saying, well, really the best thing would be, would be singleness, but okay, fine. If you really just can't control yourself, all right, I guess you can get married. And that's not at all what he's saying. This word, which is translated, cannot control themselves. It's one word in Paul's language. And it means to practice self-discipline or practice self-denial. It's the word used for athletes. The other place you find it in scripture is when Paul will say, when an athlete is in training for the games, he practices self-denial, self-discipline. Because we all know that's true. If you want to be a serious athlete then you have to have incredible self-discipline. If one of my sons came to me and said, dad, I really think I should be a professional skier, but can you pay for lessons? Because until I get sponsorships and things like that, I can't afford it. Then I'd say, well, son, okay, we could talk about that, but do you understand what you're signing up for? Do you understand the incredible discipline that this will take? If you are going to be an athlete, which again is what this word means about controlling yourself, you have to exercise incredible self-discipline. This will control what you eat, when you go to bed, when you stay out, who you hang out with, how you spend your time. And that's what Paul is saying. Paul says, hey, on the one hand, singleness is fine. It's good. It's not a problem at all, which again, incredibly subversive in his world. But he says that will require tremendous self-discipline. Because remember what we talked about previously. If you're single, then you're celibate because you can't have sex outside of your marriage. One man, one woman. That's it. So if you're single, you have to be celibate. That's going to take self-discipline. Paul says, look, If you're not going to exercise that self-discipline, if that's not you, you don't want to do that. That's fine. Then marry. And again, it's a command. If you're not going to exercise the self-discipline it takes to be celibate and single, then marry. Because remember what we read last week. They're both gifts. Being single and celibate is the gift of God. But being married and not celibate is also the gift of God. Paul says either of these is fine. And then he goes on in verse 10 to make another statement that, again, I am sure the people in Corinth must have just sort of rocked back on their seats. He says that Christians cannot get divorced. Now, I told you a couple weeks ago in an earlier sermon, like divorce is so common in the Greco-Roman world because marriage isn't about individuals. It's a communal culture. Marriage is about families. Marriage, marriage isn't about uniting individuals. It's about uniting families. It's about making alliances. So I made the example, if you and I go into business together, then the way we're going to cement that relationship is my son's going to marry your daughter, right? That, that brings our two families together. And then when they have children, it makes sure that your part of the business is inherited by your grandchildren and my part of the business is inherited by my grandchildren because they're the same people. This is what you want. But imagine a couple years later, somebody comes to you and says, "Um, hey, why don't you dump that Jeff guy? He's just holding you back. Why don't you come align with us? You'll be so much bigger, so much more successful. You'll make so much more money. And you think to yourself, Hmm, yeah, that's really true. How are you going to break our business agreement? Your daughter's going to divorce my son and she's going to go marry the son of the other guy. You're going to break this agreement, this alliance, to go make that agreement alliance and you're going to do it by marriage. You don't want your daughter and my son to have children that would inherit together. You want to separate that. Now imagine what happens if you say that to your daughter. Okay, you need to divorce Jeff's son and marry this guy's son for the new alliance and she says... No, I can't do that. I'm a Christian dad. like, Like I'm not allowed to. Divorce is not allowed in Christianity. I have to stay married. Can you see how threatening that could be to this culture? Now think about what Paul has said. This world says singleness is forbidden and divorce is fine, normal even. Paul says singleness is normal, it's fine but divorce is forbidden. There's a story in Acts where Paul is traveling around. He goes to the city of Thessalonica, which is a Greek city, just like Corinth is. And the people haul a bunch of Christians before the court. And the charge they make against the Christians is these people are turning the world upside down. And they are. I mean, Paul's just flipped completely Singleness is fine when the culture says it's forbidden. Divorce is forbidden when the culture says it's fine. Paul is turning the world upside down. And now he goes on to answer another question that they're asking him, what about being married to a non-Christian? And this is where the book of Corinthians gets harder and harder to interpret well. Because previously we knew the questions they asked him. Like he quotes their statements and then explains to them basically why they're wrong without coming right out and just saying no to them. Now he's beginning to answer questions, but we don't know what the question is. So imagine I write you a letter that says, as for the car, get the biggest possible. Now, if you don't know what the question was, You know, imagine somebody over there. They don't see your letter to me. They just see my letter to you, which is what we have. We just have Paul's response. As for the car, get the biggest possible. Well, if you asked me what kind of car should I buy, which is kind of how we read my answer, then obviously you should get a giant SUV. You should get a stretch limo. You should get the biggest car possible. But what if you said to me, hey, Jeff, I'm buying a Jeep. And there's two kinds of tires there's 200s and 215s the 215s are more expensive should i spring for them and i say to you about the car get the biggest possible i'm not talking about the size of the car i'm talking about the size of the tire but the only way an outsider would know that is to know your question we don't know the questions that the corinthians are asking so we're we're having to piece things together so clearly they've asked something about christians being married to non-christians which happened all the time. This is 55 AD. It's only 20 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. No one has grown up in the church at this point. The church in Corinth is at most four years old at this point. Like there's nobody who's grown up in the church of Corinth. There's tons of cases where one spouse gets converted and the other doesn't. And we know that in that case, pressure is going to be brought to bear that there was pressure brought to bear on the Christian to get out of the alliance with the non-Christian. Because remember, that's how this world views marriage. They view it as alliances. Like you need to get away from that alliance and you need to marry a Christian. And then maybe they're asking something about kids because Paul will talk about kids. Maybe it's like, oh, you're married to a non-Christian, right? But, But what if you have children? What's gonna happen then? You should marry a Christian so your children are born into a household of faith there would also be tremendous pressure brought to bear on the pagan spouse to get rid of the Christian spouse. Because again, the Christian spouse has a higher allegiance now. They have an allegiance to this God of the Jews, this Jesus, the Messiah of the Jews, that they're going to follow him rather than they're going to follow the family. That's a really significant issue. And so Paul is answering a question that we don't know what it was. But it's got to be something about being married, Christians married to non-Christians, because that's what he answers. But his answer to whatever they asked was, look, if your spouse is a pagan, but they're okay with you being a Christian, then stay with them. Don't divorce them. If you've got people trying to say to the Christian spouse, no, you need to get out of there. You're, You're aligned to what is wrong and what is evil. Paul says, no, it's fine. In fact, He says it's almost even good. Like the fact that you're a Christian somehow sanctifies your husband or your wife. It somehow makes your kid holy. Now again, we don't know what he means by this because we don't know what the question was. But that's a remarkable statement that a a Christian spouse sanctifies their non-Christian spouse. They make their children holy. Now, we know that doesn't mean they're saved. We know from other places in scripture that at the final judgment, you stand on your own. It's not who your parents were. It's not who your kids are. It's you. Did you believe? Your spouse isn't saved by you being a Christian but somehow they're covered. You know, it's as if, remember we talked about how, you know, Jesus is making one new person that, that, that a man and a wife, husband and wife come together and get married and sleep together. And that makes a new entity. And Jesus is part of that entity. And somehow Jesus comes along in that. And like, Again, we don't know what he means because he doesn't explain it. I'm sure they knew what he meant. They asked the question. But somehow Jesus is is expanding over this family because you're a Christian. And that's wonderful. But again, there's probably gonna be significant, significant weight brought on the pagan spouse to dump the Christian spouse. Because think about what Paul is saying about Christians. Paul says, hey, if you're a Christian, you can't get divorced. That means that you can't be part of your family making alliances anymore. Once you're married, that's it. Paul is saying that your devotion to your spouse as a Christian trumps your devotion to your blood relatives Nobody in this world thinks that's true. Again, we'd break our business agreement. Like I said, my daughter, your daughter would divorce my son. Boom. Blood is so much thicker than marriage in this world. You can see how threatening that would be to a family that now their son has married a daughter or their daughter's married a son who suddenly has a higher allegiance and isn't going to be part of that anymore. And Paul says, hey, If your spouse is willing to stay with you, great, stay. It's good, it's really good. It's good for them, it's good for your kids. But but if they won't stay, that's okay too. If they're not willing to stay with you, let them go. Let them go instead of acquiescing. Because the pagan spouse, especially if it was the husband, would have brought tremendous pressure on the Christian spouse to convert back Because again, view it from the pagan side. So uh, I, I worship Apollo. That means I've got a little shrine to Apollo in my house. And every morning I would pour out a little wine in front of the shrine as a libation to Apollo. And every evening at the evening meal, I would take a piece out of the communal plate of food and I would set it on a plate before Apollo's shrine. I would make an offering to Apollo. And that would happen day in and day out to show my devotion to Apollo. So Apollo will be nice to me. Now my wife won't do that anymore. My wife went and heard this crazy nutty guy named Paul down at the river. She came back saying that she knew the truth and she was worshiping the true God and that he had saved her and I should come along and get saved too. And she won't make the offerings to Apollo anymore. She's like, oh no, I I can't do that. Jesus, my allegiance is to Jesus. Now that's a problem Because what if Apollo gets angry at me that my wife won't make the sacrifices anymore? There is going to be tremendous pressure brought to bear, especially if the husband is a pagan on a Christian wife, to recant and renounce. Because that's bad. It's bad for you with the gods. It's bad for your family situation. You don't want that. And what Paul says is, look, if your spouse is willing to live with you as a Christian... Great, go for it, stay, it's good. But if they're not, let them go. Don't acquiesce, don't convert back, don't give in. Like Paul, he said that the the marriage relationship trumps the blood family relationship. And he's only quoting Genesis 2 there. Genesis 2, when God makes man and woman, Adam and Eve brings them together. It says a man will leave his father and mother, his blood relations and cleave to his wife right? Paul's not making this stuff up. He's saying right there, hey, look, this is is exactly what's happening. The marriage relationship is more important than the the, the relationship, the, the actual blood relationship between parents and children. But he's gone on to say, now your relationship with Christ, it matters more than your relationship with your spouse. If you have to choose, Paul says, between your spouse and your blood family, you choose your spouse. And if you have to choose between your spouse and Christ, then you choose Christ. And again, you see why people said, oh my goodness, these folks, they're turning the world upside down. Now, do you notice here in verse 12, Paul says, you know, to the rest, I say, I, not the Lord. And that goes back to verse 10, to the married, I give this command, not I, but the Lord. Paul's not saying that the first one is, you know, God told him the first one. So you got to obey that, but he didn't tell him the second one. What he means is he's quoting Jesus in the first one. When he says, this is, you know, "I, I give you this command, not I, but the Lord. What he's saying is Jesus said this and he did. You can find this back in the gospels. Jesus said, once you're married, don't get divorced. Jesus never asked the que- was never asked the question about well what if you're uh, uh, you know what if you're married to someone who's a pagan it didn't happen in the world that Jesus was in so he never dealt with it so paul says hey look jesus didn't talk about this but i'm telling you what it is i mean his his words are just as authoritative and now finally in verse 17, Paul is gonna to begin to pull all this together. He's gonna to begin to explain why he's saying what he's saying. Like, why has he said it's okay to be single? Why has he said you, you need to stick with your husband first? Why has he said that if you gotta choose between the family or Christ, you always choose Christ? Christ and he's gonna pull it all together. Now, this actually is pretty difficult to translate. So I'm gonna read you verse 17. This is in the NIV. Nevertheless, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them, just as God has called them. If you're reading from another translation, that may have sounded somewhat different because in truth, it doesn't say anything about situation or the, the ESV will say condition. Because what Paul literally says in all of this is, in which you were called. You should stay in which you were called. And the question is, in which what? So we have to supply something. Again, they've asked him questions and he's answering. They probably know exactly in which he's talking about, but we don't. And so we're trying to fill this in, but we do know, that Paul does not mean this literally. He can't possibly mean you need to stay in the situation you were in when you were a Christian, when you became a Christian. Because obviously that's impossible in some cases. If you were a kid when you became a Christian, you can't stay a kid. And look at what he says about slaves down in verse 21. He's like, hey, were you a slave when you were called? And he doesn't say, stay a slave. He says, don't let it trouble you although if you can gain your freedom, do so. So if Paul is literally saying, you have to stay in whatever situation you're in, if God called you as a nurse, you have to be a nurse for your whole life, then he's completely contradicting himself. If you're a slave, you have to stay a slave the whole time. And if you're a slave, feel free to get your freedom. He can't mean this literally. He must mean it figuratively. So what's he talking about? Staying in which you were called. And I just think he's talking about contentment. Now, again, we're speculating a bit here because we don't know the questions and we, we don't know which word to fill in and we're trying to understand this. But I think what Paul has said all through here is that as much as you can be at peace and content, be at peace. You know, Paul will say that somewhere else. As much as you can live at peace with everyone, do so. As much as it depends on you. And so Paul says, are you single? Hey, that's fine. Be At peace, be content there. Are you married? Be at peace, be content. Don't try and dump your spouse because you're discontent. Be at peace and content. Are you married to a pagan? Be content, be at peace. If they'll stay with you, it's okay. Is that pagan gonna leave? Is that pagan saying, well, it's me or Jesus, so you're out of here? It's okay. Be at peace, be content. Like in all these situations, I think Paul is saying to people, look, It's okay wherever you are. And so he's talked about single. He's talked about married. He's talked about married to a pagan. Here in this little section, he talks about Jewish Christians versus Gentile Christians. Those who were circumcised when they believed, those who weren't circumcised believe. He talks about slaves versus freemen. Were you a Jewish Christian? Great, fine, be at peace, be content. Are you a Gentile Christian? That's okay. It's okay that you're not Jewish. Be at peace, be content. Are you a slave? It's okay. Be content. If you can get your freedom, do so but it's okay to be a slave. Are you not a slave? It's okay, be content. All through here, Paul is saying over and over again that as Christians, wherever we are, whatever situation we're in, we should be at peace. That's what he said, God's called us to live at peace and we should be content. Now, why? Why does he say we should be content? Did you notice the repetition that Paul says about calling? that he says in the first verse, just as God called them. He says later on there, stay in the situation, verse 20, you were when God called you. And I told you over and over again what Paul talks about in which you were called. He says that nine times in this passage. We don't translate it nine times because that would be incredibly repetitive. There's only two verses that don't have something about being called or your calling. Like Paul is just hammering on this. If you are a believer, God has called you. And that trumps everything, Paul says. If you're single, you're there. God has called you. He's put you there for a reason. So be content. If you're married, your spouse is your spouse because God has called you and you're there married for a reason. Be content, be at peace. All through here, Paul is saying, God has called you. God has called you, God has called you. Remember I told you last week how Oftentimes in ancient writers, the conclusion is in the middle. What's the conclusion to what Paul's saying? It's the second half of verse 19 and verse 20. That's the middle of this section. Keeping God's command is what counts. Each person should remain in, and the NIV says the situation, but what Paul literally says should remain in which they were called. Wherever you are, God has called you. And wherever you are, God has put you there. And Paul says that as a follower of Christ, that trumps everything. Yeah, you know, sometimes your culture is going to hate you for that, but it's okay. In as much as you can be at peace with your culture, do so. But if you can't, you can't. There's places where your family may hate you for that. That's okay. As much as you can be at peace with your family, do so. But where you can't, where you can't, where your family forces you to decide, you always choose Christ. In all these situations, the culture, the world, your family, your marriage, your parents, your kids, in all of this, remember, God has called you. God has put you there for a reason. Keep your mind fixed on that keep your eyes fixed on that and brothers and sisters that is just as relevant to us today as it was 2000 years ago to them because it's hard to be content it's hard to be at peace with everyone it's hard to say what paul is saying which is hey look if you're in this situation it's okay right your culture tells you it's terrible but god tells you it's okay your family tells you don't do that but if God tells you it's okay, it's okay. Like this, this is a message that resonates just as much for us today as it would have for them 2000 years ago. So I'm gonna pray for us and I'm gonna ask God's spirit to speak into these situations. You know, Paul has given us some here. He's given us some about marriage. He's given us some about family. He's given us some about where we come from, Jew or Gentile. He's given us some, like I would say for us, like our occupation, our work for them, slave or free. He's laid out all these situations, but, but there's a myriad more that we could apply to it. I'm gonna ask God's spirit to speak to us about this. Are there places where we need to remember that God, God has called us. Again, remember he says that nine times, just over and over and over again. Are there places in our lives, maybe some of the ones Paul listed, maybe others. We need to remember that God has called us. We are in that for a reason. God has a purpose. And so what Paul says when he ends in verse 24, the NIV translates it, as responsible to God, each one should remain in the situation they were in when God called you. But what he literally says is each one should remain in which they were called with God. Because wherever you are, whatever situation you are in, God is with you. God has called you. Jesus promised he'll never leave you. God is in that situation with you. And the Lord can do good for it. Just like he can do good. Paul explained that to us a bit with being married to a pagan. Are there any situations where we need to remember that we have been called by God? We are with God in these situations. God can and will do good for us and other people in these situations. We need to accept, we need to be content, we need to be at peace. So pray with me. Jesus, I pray for me. I pray for my brothers and sisters. Um, You know that we live in a discontent age And you know that as these these individualistic people in our culture, that that we we are always looking for more, we are always looking for better. And Jesus, I pray for us. I pray for everyone who is listening to me now. Are there places in our lives where we need to be at peace? Are there places or situations, circumstances, relationships, anywhere that we have forgotten that you have called us and you are with us? that whatever this situation is, you have put us there and you have your reasons and you can do good there, even if no one else believes it. Lord, I pray for everyone listening to me. Holy Spirit, I pray now that you would speak to us. You would bring situations to mind. You would make it clear to us. If there are places where we need to remember, you have called us. You have placed us there. You are there with us. You will do good in that situation. And then Spirit, remind us. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would remind us in the weeks and months to come for as long as you have us in that situation. Like Paul says, if you're a slave, that's fine. But if you can get free, great, get free. For as long as you would have us in this situation, Holy Spirit, help us to remember that God has called us. He's he's placed us there. He's with us. He can and will do good in that situation for us and for others. We pray this in your name, Jesus, always in your name. Amen.